All right, if you would open your Bibles to Leviticus chapter 7 and verse 22. Leviticus 7, 22. We're going to finish this chapter tonight and um, uh, go from there. We'll get ready for chapter 8 for next week, which is the ordination ceremony, first ordination ceremony for the priest. So it, it'll be an interesting chapter that, to be sure, hopefully they're following all the rules that God gave them. <laughs> And said, this is the way you're supposed to do it. So, uh, Leviticus 7.22. Let's just take a moment for prayer. Get ourselves ready to study the word. Let's pray. Father, again, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your goodness and grace and your blessings. We thank you for your word that indeed enlightens us, challenges us, convicts us where we need it. And Father, we thank you for that. I pray that we would be able to understand tonight and be able to remember and use wisely the principles that we learned. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we have uh, been looking in uh, the first seven chapters of sacrifices for approaching God. And chapter 7 is about the trespass offering. We saw up, up through verse 21 last week. Uh, the trespass offering, general instructions, first part of it, then the peace offering. He talks about the peace offering here. Uh, He talks about instructions for eating it, what you're supposed to eat all of, what they couldn't eat, what they weren't permitted to eat, the burnt offering they didn't get to eat, peace offering they got to eat from. So uh, the burnt offering is all about the propitiation of the Father, the Godward side of salvation. Peace offering is all about reconciliation, that we've been reconciled to God, so we get to partake of that part. That's why the burnt offering is the Godward side. It's the work of Messiah on the cross for us in our place, and we couldn't do anything with that. But the peace offering, we get to eat of, and that's our side of salvation. And then, um, keep it clean. He's got the whole idea of the clean and the unclean, don't let anything contaminate these offerings. And uh, 22 to 27 now, he gives some more instructions for eating. It says, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, I actually looked this up, and 92 times in the Mosaic Law, it says, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Only one time is that word used outside of the Pentateuch, and that's in Joshua. And that's used to say that Joshua said, uh, quoted, and the Lord spoke to Moses saying. So it it all has to do with the Lord speaking to Moses, transmitting the law. Verse 23, speak to the sons of Israel. These are commands, not optional for Moses. He says, you carry this message, saying... You shall not eat any fat from an ox, a sheep, or a goat. Now, he wanted all the fat taken off. He wanted it offered up in a sacrifice. Fat is a picture of prosperity. And he's basically saying that the Lord had plenty of prosperity over and above uh, what he expended in the payment for sins. It's It's another small picture of unlimited atonement. People try to take the offering of Christ and make it... uh, limited only to the chosen or the elect, predestined, preordained before the world began, and they try to turn it into a limited atonement picture. And yet, I don't think any part of the 
Old Testament actually shows that. They they try to show that, and then they connect it with sprinkling of the blood, see, and the pouring out of the, the blood. But again, it shows the sacrifice is full and complete, but not everybody's going to partake of it. And that's the, that's the sad part. I mean, every sin for, I believe, every creature that ever existed was taken care of on the cross. And the Lord had the sufficient capital, as we've heard it, to be able to do that. He says, <clears throat> also the fat of an animal which dies. Okay, roadkill. Of course, they, I don't know if chariots were running over deer. We were talking about, Paula said she saw new deer every day. They've been killed alongside the highway. <laughs> and Jimmy said you wouldn't want her to run over the old one every time. So, <laughs> Yeah, so anyway, um, if an animal dies, you don't run out there and carve it up and, get it and try to eat it. Okay, I still think that's a good practice. That's just not a good idea. The animal needs to be properly um, sacrificed, bled, in order to not get all kinds of real nasty diseases. But he says, and the fat of an animal torn by beast. So what if you come on one that was killed by a lion? Do you get to eat it? Nope. You know, he makes it very clear. He says, uh, the fat of an animal which dies, the fat of an animal torn by beast, may be put to any other use. Okay, you can take it, chop it up, you can take it and use the skin, make clothing out of it, you can use, use it for that, but don't eat it. You must certainly not eat it. And a big part of that's because God said don't. Okay, uh, when when the Jews are out there, I wonder how many of them are going. Well, how does that work out scientifically? I don't think they asked that question, but some of them probably did. Verse 25: For whoever eats the fat of the animal from which an offering by fire is offered to the Lord, even the person who eats shall be cut off from his people. Okay, so don't do this. This is this is dangerous. Now, last week we looked at this word "cut," <clears throat> and this word is "karat." I don't know if it goes in the Japanese as "karate," but a lot of the words in different languages, when you start looking at them, have uh, way too close a similarity, which you would expect with the Tower of Babel being correct. Okay. The Tower of Babel being historical fact and the language is confused, you would expect them to carry off uh, with them a lot of the, the similar words and same words. Hebrew and Aramaic are so close to each other that they put the Aramaic words in the Hebrew dictionaries because uh, Aramaic often like, if you had a word like dabar, which means to speak in the Hebrew, you might have a rabar, in the Aramaic because they like to swap out the D's and the R's. They like to swap out the M's and the N's. There are certain letters that they like to do that, but the word had the same meaning. It just had a little different pronunciation to it. So <clears throat> he says, shall be cut off. And we looked at the word karat a little bit last, uh, last week, <clears throat> and it, it can mean... it. It, I have not been able to find if it has a technical meaning other than a separation to cut off from. 
but uh, it could mean simply excommunication, and in certain places it can be capital punishment. But I don't see where it actually means capital punishment every time you see shall be cut off from his people. Okay, But sometimes it's very clear because the Ford's first usages of the words about how he was going to cut off all living from the earth back about the flood in, in Genesis. So it, its first usage is very clear an issue of capital punishment. So if they get anything other than that, I think they better view it as, as grace. And he says, and you're not to eat any blood, <clears throat> either a bird or animal, in any of your dwellings. He did not like the, uh, uh, it's very clear, uh, eat no blood. The Jews took that very seriously. Um, and it, it was a deal even in the church. Became a big deal even in the church. And it says in verse 27, any person who eats any blood... Even that person shall be cut off from his people. So, uh, I don't think rare and medium rare steaks flew too well in in Israel. I just don't think so. My grandmother, <laughs> it's been said she treated my grandfather like a god and served him burnt offerings for dinner. <laughs> because... <clears throat> That woman, Monica, is a well-done person. So she said, get it well done and cook it some more. And she'll, she'll be ready to eat. But my grandmother could take a four-pound roast and make it a two-pound roast. <clears throat> and a lot of funny stories about that because first one Helen, roast Helen made for me, she marinated it and everything, slow-cooked it. <laughs> I went right over to the refrigerator after she set the table and got the ketchup out. <laughs> Almost ended our marriage the first year. <laughs> it was uh, almost, yeah, she was, you're not going to put that on that roast. <laughs> well, I, that's the only way you can eat it as far as I know. So you had to get some kind of moisture back in it. <laughs> anyway, I learned quick, though. <clears throat> some things are forbidden to eat, either by their nature or by another form of con contamination. So he makes that very clear. There's some things forbidden to eat. By application, don't partake of the myths, which is the fat of the nations. Because myths is when you take something and expand it and say things that are not correct. And the ancient world was full of mythology, just like it is today. The ancient world was, you know, all the, the issues of Baal and the gods with, with Baal and Moloch and Ashtaroth they were all uh, surrounded by mythology. So <clears throat> that's the application. Don't take of this expansion of the nations. By command, don't eat any blood either. Now, we're not under the Mosaic Law, so I don't think that we actually have that command that we have to cook a piece of meat forevermore. But it's... Uh, 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 don't eat blood... I <laughs> I, I would see this as don't be a vampire. Because there are people today that really think that's something and drink human blood and animal blood. and uh, A lot of the sacrifices of the Santeria and a lot of the um, Mexican, uh, Central American places and the islands out there, they offered up chickens. They'd tear the head of a chicken off, drink the blood. And that's a, yeah, I know, I just... 
spooks me too. But I would say by application or by command, don't eat any blood. And avoidance of blood was actually carried into the church so as to not to offend anybody. Uh, Acts 15 is a Jerusalem council, and you have to think about some of the things that came out of that and what was really going on. Because the Jerusalem council happened, best we can tell, about 15 to 20 years after the resurrection of Christ, 15 to 20 years into the church age. And they had a big argument, and it was basically an argument over salvation by grace or salvation by works. And when you read Galatians 2, where Paul confronted Peter face to face, I think he's talking about the Jerusalem council. We can't fully connect the dots on that, but that's what it looks like. Because Peter had got involved with the the circumcision group that was wanting to bring the Mosaic law into the church. And Paul said, no, you can't do that. And they... They had a knockdown drag out is the way we get a, a description of it. I, I'm one of these I'm gonna ask for a replay too when when we get to heaven. Can, you know, can we get the one hour version of this thing and see what really happened? But um, in any event, when they when they came through the Jerusalem Council, there was a compromise made. And one of the Jews big deals and the Judaizers, the people trying to bring Judaism into the church was the issue of blood. Don't partake of blood. And it appears to me that Paul and the rest of the grace people said, we can take that. We can can live with that so as to not offend our Jewish brothers and sisters now. Which was, you know, if that's really what happened, which I think is what happened, then that is a very good extension of loving one another and you know, bearing one another's burdens because it was such a an issue to them that had they left that council and not made some kind of compromise, then then there would have been a problem, and the church may not have may not have gone on. So <clears throat> it was carried into the church as part of the Mosaic Law. And you ask, what's the Mosaic Law being carried in the church for? And why did they come up with this? Because when you go through and read that, don't don't eat any blood. Don't eat things sacrificed to idols. That too is a big deal to the Jews. And so they made those things and they're basically saying to the Gentile believers, don't make an issue out of these things. Okay? So the church will so the church will go on. Now <clears throat> there are portions that are set aside for the priest. In verse twenty eight, then the Lord spoke to Moses. There it is. One of the ninety two times that it's found in the in the Pentateuch, and he says, speak to the sons of Israel, command once again. So Moses, you come in, you listen, and then you go tell them what I tell you. And the Lord set up a chain of command. Okay? He who offers the sacrifice of his peace offerings to the Lord shall bring his offering to the Lord from the sacrifice of his peace offerings. Now, we'll look at that in the summary in just a second. What's he saying there? And he's, he's basically saying that if you are bringing a peace offering to the Lord, it needs to be from your possessions. Okay? You, you don't go offer somebody else's. You don't offer it for them. The peace offering was all about your personal decision. 
Okay, your personal decision to accept, to accept the Messiah. So that's why he's that's why he says to the Lord from the sacrifice of His peace offerings. That little word he put in there. He says <clears throat> His own hands are to bring offerings by fire to the Lord. Okay, showing the importance of personal acceptance of the of the work of the uh, sacrifice. He shall bring the fat with the breast that the breast may be presented as a wave offering before the Lord. So here is the here is the uh, ram that has been offered up. He takes the uh, breast off of it and waves it. The waving is a is a motion for the Lord to accept it. This is it should be an acceptable offering. He's basically saying I'm not trying to hide anything. Here it is. <clears throat> And the priest shall offer up the fat and smoke on the altar, but the breast shall belong to Aaron and his sons. Now they were happy to see somebody bringing a peace offering. You, you know, this is a pretty good chunk of chunk of meat that they've got here. And he says, <clears throat> and he shall you shall give the right thigh to the priest as a contribution from the sacrifices of your peace offerings. Well, Aaron and his sons, but the guy that does the work, he gets the right thigh. So he gets a pretty good piece of meat as well. The one among the sons of Aaron who offers the blood of the peace offerings and the fat, the right thigh shall be his as his portion. Okay, so when the priests went through and they did their did their job, they did their tabernacle service whenever it's their turn to offer up the offerings they got a special bonus for that but everybody got to eat you know this is this offering was to the lord but the lord said use it to feed the priest uh it's just good old practical theology is is what it is <clears throat> the one among the sons of aaron who offers the blood of the peace offerings and the right it shall be his portion and then verse 34, for I have taken the breast of the wave offering. Okay, this is the tefuna, is the, the wave offering. And the thigh of the contribution, which is a taruna, interestingly enough, from the sons of Israel, from the sacrifices of their peace offerings. Mizbeach is a word, that's the word for sacrifice found throughout the, uh, that's a noun, Mizbeach, zabak. Without the M on the front of it is the verb, and it occurs multiple times too, uh, of their shalom offerings. And have given them to Aaron the priest to his sons as their due. Hmm. Due is the word kuka, or comes from uh, coke actually. This is the word coke, used 126 times. It is a portion or a statute. Uh, and it's the same word family as kuka. That's just a feminine noun um, from it, which is used 105 times. So statutes are pretty uh, uh, commonplace, you find, in, in the Old Testament. <clears throat> now, the first place that this word is used, coke, C-H-O-Q, is Genesis 26.5. And I mentioned that passage before because I thought I was a pretty good exegete and I was cranking right along there in Genesis. And then I hit Genesis 26.5 and it says, because your 
Father Abraham, the Lord is talking to Isaac. He's passing on the Abrahamic covenant. Because your father Abraham kept my charge. Mishmaret is the word, which is a word that is, means he, he saw what was valuable. It comes from Shemar, means to guard because it's valuable. He says he kept it. And then he explains it. Namely, my commandments, mitzvah, which emphasizes authority. My statutes, coke, <laughs> that's the specifics. And my Torah and my laws. First usage of all those words. So for an exegete, we see a word like that. We're going to do a word study on it. <laughs> and so we can go back and, you know, my thinking, I can go back and I can track all of this through the life of Abraham. I can find out where he fulfilled a mitzvah. First usage of the word. <laughs> I can find out where he, well, let me try coke. I could find out where he, he first did coke. Now that doesn't sound quite right, but <laughs> when, he, when he first did, it's not in there. Any of them. None of those four words. And so I guess I thought, well, okay, Lord, you just messed up my exegetical framework right here. How do you how do you do this? And so you start you then you have to dig in and understand what do the words mean. Okay? The mitzvah is the authority that it was given by. That's the commandment word. The coke is the specific, and the Torah is the law. That means that it is the rule. That's the way it's supposed to go. They're closely interrelated with each other. But then you go back, and what did Abraham do? Leave the land of your relatives and go to a place I'll show you. Does that sound like a command? Yeah. It's a command because the authority is involved. It is a coke because there's specifics. Leave the land... And Torah, this is the way you're supposed to live. So Abraham did that. Not that he obeyed all of them, as we well know. He, he goofed some big things up. But what he did, his life was known by being obedient to the Lord. He recognized his authority. He recognized, he tried to, to do the specifics. Take your son, your only son, sacrifice him to me. And... The fact that it was a law that was set out and established he was supposed to follow. So <clears throat> that's what he's passing on to Isaac. He says, And have given them to Aaron the priest and to his sons as their due, as the statute. He's saying this is a specific that is supposed to be followed forever. Olam. From the sons of Israel. Okay, so, peace offerings were to be bought, brought from one's personal property. Okay, this should be from your flock. Uh, it should be, that's where it comes from. And you, you take that and you take that to the tabernacle, wherever it is set up at a given time. You take it, you offer the sacrifice. You don't do it for other people. That kind of, we just covered baptism for the dead in 1 Corinthians 15. Remember that? You can't get saved for other people. <laughs> you can't save other people that weren't saved. Okay. Now I think that's kind of a picture of it here. You couldn't offer one for a neighbor, which indicates the importance of personal appropriation of peace, shalom, from God. Each individual has to do that. It is a, it is a road we all have to find is what it amounts to. Uh, God provides for his priest. Another principle we get out of this. 
Now, that's nice for us to know, isn't it? Because we're all priests. And as long as they were teaching the Word, there would be sin, huh? and they'd be fed. Now, think about this. Priests, whose job is it to preach the Word, teach the Word? It was a priest's job. So if they're teaching the Word, all are going to sin. <laughs> and as long as people are sinning, the priest are going to have something to eat. Okay? So he's, he's provided. And I still wonder why they found it necessary to add to his word. I wonder if people weren't bringing enough offerings and they decided we'll add some things here and then make them bring offerings for that, which is human nature. But Now verse 35 and 36. This is that which is consecrated. This is our word mishka. It is used 26 times, and it consecrated means set apart for their anointing. It's an interesting word. We sounds a lot like Mashiach, doesn't it? Mashiach's a word for Messiah. They're all out of the same word family. To Aaron, that which is consecrated to his sons from the offerings by fire to the Lord. In that day... When he presented them, Moses presented them to serve as priests to the Lord. This this word serve as priest, that is a interesting word because the um, the noun for priest is kohen. C or K O H E N. Now this word is kahan. And see, the three root letters are the same, only this is pronounced different, pronounced K-C-A-H-A-N, or K. You, depends on who's doing it, whether they use a C or a K to transliterate this, this uh, Hebrew cough letter. This is the verb. So it says, it says here that Service priest, they translated service priest. That's this one word. It's not three different words to serve as priest. It's used 23 times. First time it's found in the book of Leviticus. And the only place out of the Mosaic law it's found is in Hosea 4 6. And we're going to take a look at that whole passage here in just a second. Because it, it tells us weren't they just given this forever? Okay, but could it be taken away? <laughs> well, let the scripture answer. Verse 36, these the Lord had commanded to be given them from the sons of Israel in the day that he anointed them, the priest. It is their statute, kuka, forever, olam, throughout their generations. Okay. So, as long as the tabernacle and the priests are functioning, this is where their food's supposed to come from. That's what it's saying. Now, the summary, <clears throat> this provision for the Levitical priest was designed to extend into eternity. That's the way God does things when you think about it. He sets things up. He sets them up well. Humanity is the people that screw things up. Okay, We're the ones that goof it up. But when he sets it up, it's set up as to last. Now, it could be lost. 
So if you would, turn to Hosea 4 with me. Hosea, you may have to fish around the Bible to find that. I learned a long time ago when I was a kid in the sword grills, you just took your Bible and flipped it. <laughs> you found the right book. Because <laughs> I couldn't ever quite keep the sequence <laughs> correct. I knew when they, I know now, I know when they're written, I know who wrote them, I know all those stuff. And I still, if you ask me to go through in sequence the Old Testament, I may stumble over a couple of them along the way. <laughs> It's near it. It's back. It's back there by Malachi. <laughs> Page one three. Huh? Hosea chapter four. I just uh, I got the invitation to the pre-trib study group. Uh, today, which will happen in December, and everybody meets down in Dallas and argues about different things, <laughs> and we have good conversations with the with a lot of folks. And one of the main speakers is going to do um, Hosea. That's going to be his topic in end time prophecy. So uh, Hosea chapter four says, "Listen to the word of the Lord, O sons of Israel." For the Lord has a case against the inhabitants of the land. There is swearing, deception, murder, stealing, and adultery. See, those, that stuff is all prohibited by the Mosaic Law. So the Lord is, has a case against them. They employ violence so that bloodshed follows bloodshed. Therefore the land mourns, and everyone who lives in it languishes along with the beasts of the field and the birds of the sky and also the fish of the sea, disappear. Okay? And he's just basically saying, out of all this sin, it affects wildlife. Okay? And it says that more than one time throughout the Old Testament. Because oftentimes, whenever the people start sinning, the Lord judges their habitat. Okay? That's what happens. And look at the flood. What do you do at the flood? Yeah, destroyed the, the, world by, the world by water. What do you do to Israel? Ran them out a couple of times. You know, leveled Jerusalem. So, yeah, that's quite frequently when the Lord administers judgment. He does it on their habitat. And he starts in the so-called natural world to get their attention. Now he says... Yet let no one find fault, and let no one offer reproof. For your people are like those who contend with a priest. So you will stumble by day, and the prophet also will stumble with you by night. And I'll destroy your mother. This is, this, Israel's not in a good spot. It's not hard to tell. It says, my people are destroyed for... What does it say? Lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I will also reject you from being my priest. Now what does that do? It basically cuts them off from their people. Since you have forgotten the law of your God, I also will forget your children. 
This is pretty serious stuff. The more they multiplied, the more they sinned against me. And I will change their glory into shame. They feed on the sin of my people and direct their desire toward their iniquity. And it will be like people, like priests. So I will punish them for their ways. And I'll repay them for their deeds. And they will eat, but they won't have enough. They will play the harlot. They won't increase. Because they have stopped giving heed to the Lord. See, this is supposed to be a priest forever, right? And what what's he telling them in, in Hosea? You went the wrong way, folks. He says, harlotry, wine, and new wine take away the understanding. People too wrapped up fame, fortune, power, and pleasure. This is simply, this is a good description of it. My people consult their wooden idol. And the diviner's wand informs them. For a spirit of harlotry has led them astray. And they have played the harlot departing from their god. <laughs> Who have they followed? Asheroth. The gods of the people. The Ishtars of the ancient world. That's who they followed. And it says they offer sacrifices on the tops of the mountains. That's where, instead of going to the right place, and burn incense on the hills under oak, poplar, and terebinth because their shade is pleasant. Therefore, your daughters play the harlot and your brides commit adultery. I will not punish your daughters when they play the harlot or your brides when they commit adultery for the men themselves go apart with harlots and offer sacrifices with temple prostitutes so the people without understanding are ruined that, that's quite an indictment isn't it what did the Lord tell Hosea to do who was he supposed to marry a harlot. <laughs> what was it supposed to show? What Israel was doing. Okay. Now God establishes good things to be permanent. But humanity tends to mess them up. This priesthood is designed to be permanent. But there are rules that have to go. That have to, have to be followed. And if they're not followed. He's going to take it away. It's the same type of thing that happens even in the church. Whenever we're, we're supposed to have a great inheritance of gold, silver, and precious stones. That's what we're supposed to have. But if we get involved in this same type of activity, how much are we going to have? Like the Corinthians, save so as by fire. That's it. Now remember that the Mosaic Covenant was conditional based on obedience. It was not an unconditional covenant like the Abrahamic Covenant. You're a joy of participation in the Abrahamic Covenant was tied to your obedience. But the Mosaic Covenant, blessed are those who, cursed are those who. So it was conditional based on your compliance. It was conditional. Now, what the statute covers is the last couple of verses. It says, this is the law of the burnt offering. Olah, carbon. The grain offering, the minka, that's our gift offering, carbon. The sin offering, the kata. Carbon, the guilt offering, the asham, carbon, 
And the ordination offering, this is the milieu offering, which is a special offering for consecration uh, of the priest. And, it's an, and the sacrifice of shalom karban, the peace offerings, which the Lord commanded, PL perfect. I, I like when it does this because the cow stem is a stem of reality. The PL intensifies it. So when it jumps to a PL stem, uh, it it's telling us here when the Lord really commanded. <laughs> I mean, there was no uncertain terms. Everybody knew what he said. Everybody knew what they were supposed to do. When he commanded Moses at Sinai, Moses fully understood. And what was he? What did he understand? Speak to the sons of Israel and tell them. He says, in the day that he commanded the sons of Israel to present their korban, their offerings, to the Lord in the wilderness of Sinai. Okay? So what had, what had happened? They're right there by Sinai. Sinai is brought up. These are summary verses of the preceding chapters. These two verses have just summarized Leviticus 1 through 7 for us. Okay? Notice the date stamp with a location when they were at Sinai. Now, when were they at Sinai? Hmm. Well, from the giving of the law to the fourth year of Solomon was 480 years. What was the fourth year of Solomon? It's interesting, the fourth year of Solomon is a date pretty well agreed on by everybody in ancient history. They, some of them differ by 40 years, but most of them agree on 966, 965 B.C. is the fourth year of Solomon. Okay, so you back it off 480 years and you get the Exodus at 1445 B.C. It's a major time stamp that you, when you start looking at ancient history, you count forward... You count forward from Adam to Abraham. And it's interesting because from Adam to the flood was 1,656 years. And then Abraham was born 352 years, roughly, after the uh, flood. So he was born roughly uh, 1,656, 352 is what? Uh, 2,008. 2,000 years after Adam, the fall of Adam. Okay, <clears throat> and then from the, promise to, from the promise to Abraham to the giving of the law was 430 years from Galatians 3.17. Now, he's born here in 2008, but he didn't get the promise till he was 75, according to Genesis 12.3. And so you add 505 years to that, and you get right at 14.45. And then the 480 years comes from 1 Kings 6.1. And that takes us to 965 B.C., roughly. And that's what the Bible reveals as the chronology of ancient history. Now, <clears throat> this, is, uh, this is important because I, I think the Bible's accurate in everything a lot of even conservative scholars say, well, the numbers are all messed up. And I beg to differ, differ with them. And uh, I would like to have a real good argument with one that would really talk about it. Uh, they usually just write you off as an uneducated idiot, and so they don't want to talk about it. But uh, 
I'm stupid enough to say if the Bible says it, that's what I believe. So, anyway, <clears throat> here's a date stamp. 1445, we know that they walked out of Egypt. We know that they went to Sinai. And we know some, some other things. The beginning of the law is recognized as beginning 50 days after the Jews walked out of Egypt. And it was remembered by the Feast of Pentecost. The Feast of Pentecost was put in and installed to remember the day that they, the 50th day, they walked out of Egypt and they got the law. And what happened then? A new priesthood was established. Now, it's so important because we get into arguments over dispensations. And <clears throat> dispensations... Depending on who you pick up and read, you can pick up Usher, you can pick up, ba uh, not Ballinger, but Bullinger. You can pick up different things, and some have eight dispensations, some have seven dispensations, some have five dispensations. Some of them have uh, about 15 little dispensations at the beginning of the church age. I mean, they, they throw the term di dispensation around. When we were writing the Foundations book, uh, we had... A real good discussion about this because if we're over there teaching uh, pastors and they're going to ask us, well, I, they're going to say, well, I, I heard there were seven dispensations and you've only got four. Well, why? And there is a verse that is the key to the whole thing uh, because they tend to. So dispensations is a subjective, for the most part, explanation of different periods of history where God deals with people in different ways. For the most part, it's very subjective. Okay, what uh, actually one of the dispensations, the age of innocence in the garden before the fall, and then the age of the patriarchs that goes to Israel, and then it goes from Abraham on as the age of Israel from the birth of Abraham on but he wasn't Israel when he was born in fact his name was never Israel that was a grandson of his so there's there's certain things that can get real confusing real fast and we say what's the simplest way to teach it and Hebrews seven twelve popped up and it says where there is a change of priesthood of necessity there's a change of law and that was our answer. Because we could point the pastors to this. See this verse. Yes. When did the priesthood change? Well, from Adam to Moses, it was a family priesthood. Okay? And that includes Job. Includes Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. From Adam until Moses, it was a family priesthood. The patriarch of the family was the one that offered up the sacrifices. So you can look at that and go, that's family priesthood. Then Moses came along, and it was a tribe of Levi. Huh, new priesthood, new law, right? That's pretty easy to follow. That's a, clearly a dispensation that starts with Moses. And yet a lot of conservative scholars still... They don't see pr the problem with the subjectivity they have 
And one of the attacks that, that we get who are dispensational believers, one of the attacks we get is that uh, it's all subjective. I got in a discussion with a guy, I've known him for a long time, and he, he uh, went to the dark side and became a reformed Calvinist. And he was uh, tried to pick a fight with me actually online. Um, we put up a blog spot for a while and realized real quick, I don't have time to mess with this stuff. So we, anyway, he, he was trying to pick a fight over dispensations. And I wrote him back and I said, I know what you're saying. I know that they're subjective. But Hebrews 7.12 always worked for us. And that's why we put it in the, found, in the foundations book. Because we could say, here's a dispensation, here's a dispensation, and it's all based on the priesthood. And then he got, he said, I've got, I've got 20 commentaries on my shelf. Not one of them mentions Hebrews 7.12 as having anything to do with dispensations. And so I wrote him out and said, well, I've got 40 commentaries on my shelf. And none of them mention Hebrews 7.12 as having anything to do with dispensations. And therein lies the problem. <laughs> People are reading too many commentaries and not reading the Word. And so we need to go to the Word and let the Word tell us where these things are. So when is, when is the next dispensation? The day of Pentecost. Right? What happened? No more Levitical priesthood. Instead, it's a universal and royal priesthood. We don't bring animal sacrifices like they did under these two priesthoods. But our law is totally different. We are totally to function under the law of love. Love for God, love for one another. Everything else is supposed to flow from there. We don't bring animal sacrifices. We bring ourselves. See? The priests do the same thing. They were supposed to teach others they led in praise and they offered sacrifices and you can see this in all the dispensations that's what they do they're just different and our priesthood will go till the rapture this mosaic priesthood will go back in for seven years known as the tribulation and then the millennial kingdom will start. And this is the priesthood from the line of Zadok. The Zadokite line, line of the Levitical priesthood. And that's the millennial priesthood. So we know we can identify when dispensations start and stop. And I, I think it's also important because there's a, a transition. And some people say, well, there's... There's a transition. Actually, there's a clear starting and stopping points with these. Does it take a while to get the new information of the new law? Yes, it does. But it doesn't mean that it's kind of sliding into the new dispensation. The new dispensation changed when God, by decree, said the priesthood changed. And so that's how we, that's how we teach dispensations. And that... To me, is the simplest explanation of the verses that we that we've got to work with. So, the establishment of new priesthoods indicates a change of dispensation. They are the corner pieces of human history. 
uh, angelic conflict wraps around them. I mean, it, it's amazing what they do. If you're going to put together a picture of prophecy, you have to have the bookends. It's just like a massive jigsaw puzzle, um, literally a 10,000-piece jigsaw puzzle, which Monica is the only person I know can work one of those things. And got the patience to do that because she puts them up on Facebook and you get to see the finished product. And I go, I love you, Monica. I couldn't do that. I wouldn't do that. I'd go nuttier than a fruitcake. <laughs> I don't have the patience for it. But anyway, prophecies, there's 31,000 plus verses in the New Testament, in the Bible. And fully a third of them are prophetic. So you have a 10,000 piece jigsaw puzzle and to put together prophecy you have to do it just like you did jigsaw puzzle and you find the corners first and the corners of the dispensations and if you don't get those prophecy is just a muddled mess that's all it is it's a it's a <laughs> mess of pottage and that's why people tend to move things around and they they want to put certain events with with um, uh, the wrong in the wrong place. There are certain things that you find out with the the rapture, things that fit around the rapture. So you look for all those pieces that go with the rapture, and then you put that together. There's certain things that are tribulational. Clearly, Hosea's got stuff that is clearly tribulational stuff. And clearly millennial stuff in there. So uh, you put those pieces together. Things around the second advent. We know the rapture and second advent is different. Because in the rapture we go up. And in the second advent we come down. Okay. That, that's the way it's done. Two separate events quite clearly. And then you start putting millennial stuff. Like the lion laying down with the lamb. You start putting all those verses together. And then you get a picture of the uh, millennial kingdom. Although it's not a real clear picture, you at least know what, what's, uh, what's coming, what's getting ready to happen. But without the dispensations based on the change of priesthoods, I don't think you can put together a uh, picture of prophecy without having an understanding of that. Uh, otherwise, it becomes a reformed uh, theology muddled mess because everything is uh, allegorically fulfilled. It doesn't require a literal fulfillment. I actually had one, somebody tell me one time that uh, they believe the allegorical interpretation was the literal fulfillment. Just keep working on it. You'll figure it out. It's not, not going to happen. Not going to happen. Anyway, I enjoyed tonight. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this day. Thank you for your goodness and grace. We thank you for each other. We thank you for your word. We thank you for just all the blessings you poured out upon us. And, Father, I just pray that, indeed, you would uh, help us be able to remember your word as we try to look at, discern, evaluate the various things going on in this world. And I pray that we would not get discouraged because it's not falling apart. It's just falling into place. Just like you said. So I pray, Father, that we would be able to uh, keep our ears tuned for the trumpet and keep looking up where, you, where the Lord is seated. We ask this in Jesus' name.
Amen.